0: Well, last week I preached a sermon on the nature of the truth, uh, which is an absolutely fundamental matter in any age, really, but especially in our day when the very existence of truth is under attack. The concept of truth is fundamental to all rational thought, fundamental to our understanding of and relationship to reality fundamental to our understanding and practice of morality. Then I spoke about our need as the people of God in this place at this time to be salt and light to the decaying and lost culture around us. Our need not to retreat from a depraved and corrupt world, but to boldly confront that world by proclaiming the truth of the Christian worldview in the face of the lies and the absurdity and the chaos that surround us. And I did mention that there is no more pervasive illustration of our culture's descent into absurdity and its willingness to suppress the truth in unrighteousness than the transgender movement. And because of that, we need to bring the Word of God to bear On human sexuality. The LGBTQ movement has absolutely hijacked our culture, whether it be in the educational system, which seeks to normalize sexual perversion in the minds of children and indoctrinate them and really groom them for sexual deviancy, whether it be in pop culture entertainment like TV and and music and movies whether it be the medical system which pressures adults and even children now to mutilate themselves by life-altering surgeries because of their gender dysphoria, or whether it be the legal system which can be leveraged to bankrupt those who dare to dissent from this new sexual orthodoxy. If we're going to have any hope of being salt and light in this culture, We have to be equipped to confront this perverse sexual credo with a biblical doctrine of sexuality, to proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ and His right as King of the universe, to define good and evil, truth and falsehood in this world. And if the Lord tarries, this is likely to be a precipitating cause of persecution in the church In the coming years, that legal system will be leveraged against you and me if we refuse to bow the knee to calling evil good and good evil. And so we need to be equipped to give the Bible's answers to the culture's perversions. And we need to be convinced that those answers need to be given, or we will compromise under the pressure of persecution. But as I began preparing to preach on biblical sexuality, I realized very quickly how central the notion of identity has become in this discussion. Our culture has actually conflated sexuality with identity. According to them, our sexual appetites define us. We are what we desire. And if we ever act out of, out of accord with our basest desires and impulses, well, we are somehow then not being true to our authentic self. I'll talk more about this in coming weeks, but fundamental to the issue of the transgender movement is, I am what I feel like I am. Sometimes what I am on the outside doesn't match the way that i feel on the inside and so rather than conforming my feelings to what is the objectively external truth of my body i prefer to conform my body to what i subjectively feel like inside i am who i say i am that sounds a lot like what moses heard at the burning bush doesn't it the problem is God is the one who gets to say, I am who I am. The problem is, Scripture does not define mankind that way. And that means before we can begin to treat or understand biblical sexuality, we need to consider mankind's identity at its most fundamental level. And it's not just sexuality where our our culture struggles with identity. The last several years have found us in the greatest racial tensions in America since the civil rights movement. Ethnic tribalism and divisions have exploded, especially in the last seven or so years. But that's not altogether surprising since the world tells us that men and women are evolved animals whose ethnicities are literally different races. Different species. And then there's the pinnacle of our moral barbarism. The legally protected right to kill defenseless little babies in the wombs of their mothers. But why not if, once again, we are just evolved animals with no inherent value or dignity? Why can't we just discard the undesirable or the incapable? Survival of the fittest, right? Legal abortion is a criminal level of brutality and cruelty that derives from a fundamental failure to understand our identity. Homosexuality and transgenderism, ethnic partiality and Tensions, legal abortion, all of that is the result of having absolutely no sense of who or what we are as human beings. In the first sentence of John Calvin's magisterial classic, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin famously writes Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God. And of ourselves. Our understanding of who we are is inseparable from our understanding of who God is and how we relate to Him. And it has never been more important for Christians to find our identity in what God says we are. And that identity begins with the doctrine of creation, it begins with the fact that we are not animals evolved from goo. Still less are we semi-divine demigods, free to be the masters of our fate and captain of our souls. The very first thing to say about man is that he is a creature. That is where our identity begins. That means that we are not ultimate. We are accountable to the God who has made us. We look to Him to tell us who we are and how we must live. And following upon that, in the same breath that we learn that man is a creature, we learn that we have been created in the image of God. We are image bearers who have inherent worth and dignity as we reflect the glory of our Creator in a unique way among the creations. And we take it from Genesis one twenty seven, sort of our foundational text for the next several weeks as I'm with you here on Sunday nights. Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them you see three fundamental features of mankind's identity right there as the Bible speaks about man for the very first time. He is a creature. God created him. He is an image bearer in the image of God. He created him. And he is gendered, male and female. He created them. And that'll be something of an outline over the next three or four messages for us. Creature, image bearer gendered. Tonight, we focused on the first of those. The first thing that Scripture says about our identity is that we are creatures. Psalm 100 and verse 3, it is He who made us and not we ourselves. Most fundamentally, we say that man is the direct creation of the Creator, God. In their systematic theology, Joel Beeky and Paul Smalley say, "...the Bible roots our understanding of man in creation. Human life has purpose and meaning because we did not come into being by accident or by our own will, but by the will of God who created both us and the world in which we live. Therefore, we belong to Him and exist for Him." The doctrine of creation anchors our worldview in God, directs our lives to His glory, and protects us against idolatry. Now, questions concerning the creation of man involve us in a study of the creation of all things. And the biblical doctrine of creation is always under attack from those who would seek to undermine the biblical worldview. If you want to free man from his accountability to his creator and the totalizing claims of the law of God, so that he can be left alone to sin in peace, where do you start? You start at the very root. You seek to undermine the doctrine of creation. If there is no creator, then man isn't a creature accountable to a creator. It's the denial of the biblical doctrine of creation decades ago in popular culture that has us in the chaos that we are living in Now, and of course there's one problem with denying creation, there's a whole creation to explain away. And it's a tall order to be looking around at the glories of a creation, breathing in the blessings of a bountiful, personal creator each moment, while at the same time denying that any creator has created the creation that you're living in and enjoying and yet man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. What has Satan done? He has focused his attacks on the doctrine of creation itself. So many false theories of how we got here pervade the mind of the culture. You have polytheistic creation myths where the gods battle or even reproduce with one another and give birth to our world. You have Pantheistic accounts like Hinduism, which say that creation is God and God is the creation. Or in pop neo-paganism, people say something like, well, the universe is smiling upon us today. That's pantheism. There's also something called panentheism, which says that God is sort of like the soul of the universe, uh, God is to the universe what our soul is to our body, and there really is some sort of melding. It's not quite that He is the creation, but He's in everything. And then the opposite of that, materialism claims that physical matter is all there is. The, the universe is eternal. Uh, there is no immaterial. There has been no creation. They're just What we see just always was, even if not in the same form that we see it now. That is the fundamental assumption, the a priori, dare we say, unscientific presupposition of atheism, Darwinism, neo-Darwinism, and any sort of model that depends on the Big Bang. And the common thread in all of those false accounts of creation is the worship of the creation at the expense of the worship of the Creator. Pantheism and panentheism fail to distinguish God's being from the creature's being. The creation is God, so worship it. Materialism says, well, since there's no true God really there, we'll make a God out of what is. It's a testimony to the fundamentally religious nature of the heart of man. You and I are inveterate worshipers. We must worship something. And if you have a sin-fueled agenda to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 says, an a priori commitment to reject the biblical Creator because you don't want to be subject to His law, well, you do exactly what Romans 1.23-25 says you do. You exchange the glory... Of the incorruptible God to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. See, if the universe has no Creator, then the universe becomes our God. But against all of that truth suppression, Scripture testifies with uniformity. With clarity and with authority, that the one true God, the God of the Bible, has created all things by the word of his mouth in, in the span of six literal 24 hour days. And if we're going to have any hope of confronting the lies of our culture with the truth of man's identity, first of all, as the direct creation of God, friends, we need to be able to defend the doctrine, the scriptures teaching, of six day creation. Those two issues are inextricably linked. Perhaps they don't seem it on their face, but they stand and fall together. And it's why, if you say you believe in a young earth or a six-day creation, you get laughed out of every classroom, every newsroom, every break room you walk into, because the natural man must scoff at this most basic fundamental claim if he's going to create his own identity and live according to His own morality. And so if we compromise Scripture's clear teaching of six-day creation, we necessarily give ground to the atheist or the evolutionist who wants to reimagine man as an animal. How? Because when you allow the infallible and unchangeable text of Scripture to be interpreted through the lens of the always fallible and always changing precepts of contemporary scientific consensus, you yield in principle the authority and sufficiency of the Scripture to the unbeliever. In other words, if the Bible doesn't mean what it says when it claims that God created the world in six days and man on day six, upon what consistent basis can we insist that the Bible means what it says when it claims that God has directly created man in His own image, and when it says that God created a male and female, and that male and female are fixed and unchangeable categories. You see, we would cut our legs out from under us. And so in undertaking a defense of man's identity as the direct creation of God, we must take up a defense of six-day creation. We must be able to convince ourselves that this is Scripture's teaching. And we must be able to be equipped to give Scripture's answers to those who would aim to refashion mankind's identity at its very root. And so with the time I've got left, we'll aim to give several arguments for the truth that God created the world in six days. I don't know how many I'll get through. We'll see. And here I may be forced to borrow the Lerman. From Abner Chow. Uh, this is something of a lecture sermon hybrid. We need the pulpit and the classroom for this. And it, it's not it's not meant to leave off the heart. It's meant to give the, the mind's foundation out of which true worship flows, out of which true commitment and steadfastness in the face of opposition is rooted. Well, that first argument, then, for six-day creation is that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative. Why, why is that important? Because many objections to the literal truthfulness of the Bible's creation account are arguments about genre, that people claim that Moses didn't even intend to write a record of actual history. He meant it as Poetry. And they point to a poetic like refrain as evidence, and there was evening and there was morning, one day, a second day, and so on. And they point to the beautiful parallels between the lights on day one and the shining celestial bodies on day four, the waters on day two, and the sea creatures on day five, and so on. And they say, you see, it's just poetry, and you're not supposed to take poetry literally. And of course, yes, poetry uses figurative language sometimes. But even so, poetic language and artful structure can still reveal literal truth. The ten plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7 to 12 are presented in a skillful, artful, structured literary form. Should we reject the historicity of the plagues? Matthew lists six sets of seven generations in his genealogy of Jesus. Should we regard that as unreliable? No. Literal truth can be presented in an artistic form without calling its historicity into question. But even beyond that, there are clear indicators that Genesis 1-3 to is not Hebrew poetry, but historical narrative. For one thing, we don't see the synonymous parallelism that characterizes so much of Hebrew poetry like we see in the Psalms or in the poetic portions of the prophets. Instead, we see the plentiful use of what's called the wayiktol verb. You don't have to memorize the term, but it's a verb construction that moves Hebrew narrative along, just like you see in the books of the Kings or Chronicles, which everybody agrees is a historical narrative. But this narrative marker, this verb form occurs more frequently in Genesis 1 to 3 than it does in the book of the Kings. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. Those and, 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 then, then, then constructions are the key grammatical indicator of hebrew historical narrative recounting a historical record of events we need to understand that a second argument for hebrew or genesis being historical narrative is we, we find references to the garden of eden right alongside references to other biblical place names that no one believes are non-historical sometimes people will say that genesis 1 to 3 or even genesis 1 to 11 aren't real history they're just sort of a, a, a story that means to teach us theological truths. But most everyone agrees that by Genesis 12, the author intends to be writing a factual record of history. Of course, not everybody believes what the author says, but even those who reject biblical authority will say the author intends to be writing what he believes happened by Genesis 12. But one chapter after Genesis 12, in Genesis 13:10 you've got a reference to the Garden of Yahweh right alongside cities of, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as well as a reference to the land of Egypt as well as far as you go to the land of Zoar. So if we're not intended to take Eden as a literal and historical place, with what level of consistency can we say that Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt and Zoar are real places? Well, none. Just as those places are historical, so also is the Garden of Yahweh. And third, you have genealogies that appear throughout the later chapters of Genesis that link the creation narrative in chapters 1 through 3 to the rest of history. Genesis 5 treats Adam as a historical person who fathered real children, who then fathered children of their own. You go from Adam to Seth all the way down to Noah and his sons. And that brings us, of course, into the post-flood world. And Genesis 10 and 11 include genealogies of Noah's sons that take us to Abraham, and then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And so the question would be, where would you draw the line? You can't say that Genesis 1 to 3 is non-historical myth while the rest of it is history, because Genesis 5 treats Genesis 1 to 3 as history by linking Adam to Seth to Noah. You can't draw the line at chapter 12 because chapters 10 and 11 link Noah to Abraham, and so on. We go all the way down to David in the Chronicles. We could go all the way down to Jesus in Luke chapter 3 because Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3 goes all the way back to Adam. And so you get the point. If later portions of Scripture depend upon and refer to previous events as if they were actual historical events, and if those historical events didn't take place, then we don't just lose the historicity of Genesis. We lose the reliability of Scripture altogether. Now, besides those, Jesus himself reads Genesis as historical narrative. And his opinion, I would say, is pretty important, right? Jesus' opinion of the age of the earth is one that I'd like to emulate. So in Mark 10, 6-8, Jesus quotes from the first wedding sermon in Genesis 2, and he not only treats it as true history but he says that it took place from the beginning of creation which means that the marriage of Adam and Eve did not occur after thousands of years or millions of years of evolution similarly in luke 11 50 to 51 Jesus pronounces woe upon the scribes, and he speaks of how the leaders of Israel shed the blood of the prophets since the foundation of the world, he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So Jesus considers the murder of Abel in Genesis 4 to have happened at, quote, the foundation of the world, not thousands or millions of years after the foundation of the world, which means friends Jesus was a young earth creationist. And so the fact that Genesis 1 to 3 is historical narrative is a decisive argument for six-day creationism if for no other reason than that it means we should read the text to say to mean what it seems to be saying on its face. It's not poetry. It doesn't invite figurative non-historical interpretation. It means what it says. So, one, it's historical narrative. Two, God created ex nihilo, or out of nothing. God did not create the universe with pre-existing matter, as theistic theories of evolution teach. He did not as the theistic evolutionists argue, endow created reality with potencies which spontaneously, by energies intrinsic to them, then produce the various forms of life. That's a quote. No, God made everything out of nothing. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, heavens and the earth, means to include all that exists He's created heaven and earth and all things in between. Acts 14, 15 says that very thing. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There is nothing that God did not create. There is no eternal matter. There is only eternal God. Hebrews eleven three 3 says, "...what is seen was not made out of things which are visible." God didn't make our world by manipulating existing materials for a long period of time. No, as Romans 4.17 says, He called into being that which did not exist. And so related to that then is the fact that God did not only create ex nihilo, but He also created in verbo, that is to say, by His Word. God created by His Word. We just mentioned Hebrews 11.3. The earlier half of that verse says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. We see that plainly in the creation narrative itself. Genesis 1 repeats over and over again, then God said, and it was so. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, a well-meaning, professing Christian who's sort of dubious about six-day creation, well, you know, Genesis tells us that God created, but it doesn't tell us how God created. Well, sure it does. It says He spoke the world into existence. He created by His Word. An important text for this is Psalm 33, verses 6 to 9. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God created by his word. In in Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And those ands in Psalm 33, 9 are the same grammatical indicator as we saw in Genesis one to three. It's the, the verb form that says there's no lapse of time in between the speaking and the doing, between the commanding and it standing fast. The text won't allow for us to understand by that phrase, he spoke and then millions of years passed with these sort of uh, processes that were going on, taking, you know, he's guiding them, but really it's they're doing it over millions of years and the evolutionary process yielded stars and fish and the creeping things. No, he spoke, and immediately upon speaking, it was done. That does not allow for an old earth. So, historical narrative out of creation, out of nothing, creation by his word. Number four, six day creation is substantiated by the existence of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, establishes the pattern of a six day work week and a seventh day of rest, on the basis of the fact that God created in six days and rested on the seventh day. So Moses, who wrote Genesis 1, also writes Exodus 20, and he treats Genesis 1 as the straightforward history that it is, and he appeals to the six days of creation as the foundation for Israel's Sabbath rest on the seventh day. Exodus 20, 11, in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day, therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that verse is, is absolutely meaningless if God didn't create in six literal days. And that just fits so well with a straightforward reading of the text of Genesis 1. It's a historical sequence of creation in six literal days. We have evening and morning, or an ordinary cycle of night and day. Which is never used figuratively in Scripture. We have the Hebrew term yom, the word for day, which, when used with a number like one day in Genesis 1 5 or a second day, Genesis 1 8, is never used figuratively in Scripture, but only ever to speak of a 24 hour period. Exodus 20, verses 8 and 11, 8 through 11, tells us in explicit terms. Exactly the same thing that Genesis 1 tells us in explicit terms. In six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth. A fifth argument is that Scripture emphasizes that man is the direct creation of God. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip this fifth point, but man is the direct creation of God. Sixth, man is not only God's direct creation... Man is God's unique creation, and that uniqueness separates man from the rest of the creation and requires that he not be understood as just another one of the animals. Scripture speaks of this in several ways. One, by man's being the climax of creation, right? man and Men and women are created on day six after everything else, and only after man's creation is God's work pronounced Very good, Genesis one thirty one, as opposed to just good in the rest of the chapter. And God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. But then when he makes man, he saw that it was very good. That sets us apart. Number two, man's creation is unique in being pictured as the result of determinate counsel in chapter 1, verse 26. With everything else, it's been let there be and there was. But with man, it's let us make. There's a note of deliberation there, a note of consultation within the plurality of the Godhead, suggesting wisdom and intentional planning. Not that the other things weren't intentionally planned, but it sets it apart in some way. There's uniqueness here. Three, no other creature is said to be the image of God. Everything else is made... After their kind, right? And He made such and such after its kind and such and such after its kind. But man is not made after its kind. Man is made in our image, God says. Man stands in the closest possible relation to God, distinct from the animals. Four, we also see uniqueness in that because man bears the God's image, if you kill a man, you merit capital punishment. Genesis 9, 2 through 6. God kills animals to provide Adam and Eve with a covering in Genesis three twenty one. He's pleased with Abel's sacrifice of animals in Genesis 4, 4. If someone kills an animal, it's not necessarily a problem. But in Genesis 9, 6, we learn whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That speaks to uniqueness. And five, also related to that, no other creature is tasked with being God's vice-regent and exercising dominion over all other creatures. As we learn in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, let them rule and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over every living thing. Psalm 8, 6 says, You make man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so again, this uniqueness separates man from the rest of creation, which wouldn't be so if he were simply a more highly evolved hominid, but of, of essentially of the same nature as the other animals. And that runs clear across the grain of what your coworkers will tell you as you sit next to them tomorrow morning at the office or what your neighbors will say as you speak to them about the truth of who we are. We, we, they, they believe that we are animals, just another one of the evolved, you can't even say creatures. The Scriptures won't let us sit with that. The Scriptures will not allow us to have that conception of ourselves. Now, of course, there are are just objections upon objections to six-day creation, and we don't have time to address really any more of those tonight. But one sort of category of objection that I want to speak to is the notion that the Adam that we read about in Genesis 1 to 3 wasn't a historical person. People who ostensibly accept the Bible's authority will say that Adam is meant to be a group of highly developed hominids to whom God gave moral and spiritual consciousness, not the actual literal person, the father of the human race. And so Beeky and Smalley say in their systematic theology again, they say, in this view, the human race descended from a group of several thousand individuals who lived about 150,000 years ago. In this view, Genesis 2 is understood to refer not... To the literal creation of Adam and Eve, but is a symbolic allegory of the entrance of the human soul into a previously soulless animal kingdom. Again, so many problems with this, just state one or two here. The Bible testifies to man being the singular, direct creation of God, rather than being some sort of group of man-like animals. Genesis 2:7 tells us that God formed a single individual from the dust of the ground. Genesis 2-7, the man, he says, a singular, not a clan, not a tribe or a people. And then the verse goes on to say that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, that is, the man's nostrils, not the nostrils of hundreds of thousands of hominids or primates or whatever it is that you would call them. And then the verse says, the man, singular, became a living creature." In Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And alone cannot describe a clan or a tribe or a people. And the reason that it's bad for man to be alone is because he can't reproduce and fulfill the divine mandate to fill the earth. It just doesn't fit. Why is that so important? Why take a moment to address that objection? Well, for at least a couple reasons. I know I'm giving you a lot of reasons. I'm I'm falling back on Lerman. Thanks, Abner. Um, But consider these five implications. Without a a six-day creation of a historical atom, we lose the basis for the dignity of mankind because mankind couldn't be anything but another evolved animal. And in that case, there really wouldn't be a basis for the humane treatment of people over animals. People kill animals for food or for sport. You kill a man for food or for sport, you're liable to lose your own life, at least your freedom. What accounts for the difference if Adam is not a historical person and if man is just a high-functioning animal? Not only that, but a historical Adam is the basis for the unity of mankind, not just the dignity, but the unity of mankind. Acts 17.26 says, And he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. The fact that every human being has descended from the one man, Adam, means that there are not multiple races. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as European humanity or African humanity or American humanity or Asian humanity. Those may be ethnicities. But the difference between them are superficial characteristics that describe our behavior and cultural backgrounds, not what we are in our essence. Even scientifically, something like 99.8% of the genetics of every human being on the earth are identical. There is one human race. And I mentioned it earlier, our culture is suffering so mightily from ethnic strife And as the people of God, we want to do something about that. We want to help. But we're not going to help by embracing the world's solutions for that. We're not going to help by embracing critical race theory, which is just as racist as the problems they're aiming to solve. The only way the church will successfully battle these ethnic tensions is to insist upon the biblical depiction of man, which starts with the unity of the race in Adam as image bearers of Almighty God. If you remove that, you undermine the basis for ethnic unity and you you clear the way for conceiving humanity as genuinely distinct races of people, which, by the way, was the stated intention of Darwinian evolution. The full title of Darwin's famous book is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Darwinian evolutionary theory was the foundation for eugenics, for the idea of killing off some of the unfavored races because they were viewed to be not as fit as the other races. Who were they? The unfavored race? Well, according to Hitler, the Jews were an unfavored race that needed to be killed off. According to Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, the blacks were inferior and needed to be snuffed out so that mankind could progress in our evolutionary development. The biblical doctrine, though, of of the historical Adam destroys all of that because we all have the same daddy. Adam. Adam. Calvin wrote this, it was God's will that we should proceed from one fountain in order that our desire of mutual concord might be the greater and that each might the more freely embrace the other as his own flesh. Okay, then not only dignity and unity, but the historical Adam is the basis for the Bible's doctrine of sin. Romans 5.12 says, through one man, sin entered into the world. Romans 5.17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. 1 Corinthians 15.21, for since by a man came death. And then verse 22, in Adam all die. The Bible's explanation for the corruption of this world is sin. And its explanation for how sin intruded into God's very good creation is the sin of the one man, Adam, who stood as the federal representative of the entire human race so that his sin was counted to be our sin, and so that all creation was cursed as a result of his transgression. If Adam's not a a literal, real person, where has the brokenness of this world come from? Was the world that God created and called very good created with sin and evil and death in it from the beginning? Or did God create evil directly? If not, is he somehow overthrown by forces of evil outside of his control? Without a historical fall of a historical Adam, we lose the doctrine of original sin and we lose the doctrine of a good and righteous and sovereign God. And more than that, we lose the gospel. The historicity of Adam is a gospel issue. Why? Because in those passages I just quoted, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Adam is as integral to the logic of salvation as Jesus Christ is. That entire paragraph in Romans 5 is Paul's doctrine of Adam and Christ as the, heads of the, two, of two, as the two heads of humanity. Romans 5.14 says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. And Romans 5.19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For since by a man, that is Adam, came death, by a man also Christ came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You can't have the gospel without a historical Adam who historically sinned, because without Adam you can't have a historical Jesus to come as the antitype of Adam to accomplish redemption. If Adam hasn't sinned in history, then Christ hasn't atoned in history, and we're all damned in our sins, that's not a matter of literary criticism. That's the gospel. And then... As we said before, there's no way we could deny the historicity of Adam and not lose any consistent basis for the authority of the rest of Scripture. Why? Because all of these passages later on refer to Adam as a genuine historical person. I could read them off to you, Job 31, 33, Romans 5, 14. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9 are especially important because there Paul says, Man does not originate from woman... But woman from man, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman's for, woman from the man's for the man's sake. And then he's giving instruction about what roles a man and a woman are to play in the home and in the church and in society. Where's Paul getting that from? He's getting it from the creation narrative of Genesis one through three. Paul seems to think that the creation account has consequences for how we understand our identity as men and women today in the New Testament, New Covenant era. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, Paul bases his entire instruction concerning the distinct roles of men and women in marriage in the church in the creation account, 1 Timothy two thirteen. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, if you don't like the conclusions that Paul draws from that teaching, like, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, which is just verse 12, the previous verse. If you don't like that, then what do you have to do to the thing that he grounds it in? For it was Adam who was created first. Well, you have to undermine that basis upon which he draws his teaching. If Adam and Eve aren't really historical, what's the basis upon which we can enforce this spirit-inspired understanding of our own identity as men and women and the proper roles we engage in as a result of that identity? We can't. And that's the point. That's the entire point. Enemies of the truth desire to be entirely free from the accountability that they have before their creator. And they realize that it's only when we can unmoor ourselves from the doctrine of our creation and the image of God that the basis for our fixed identity is undermined. If Genesis is a fairy tale, its authority to reveal God's will to man disappears. But if God really did create the world in six days, and if Adam really is the first man God created in history, And we can use the Old Testament the same way that Jesus and Paul did to understand our Creator's perspective on who we are and what it means to live as His image-bearers in this world. It's been well said that in this age, when the church is so ravaged by moral relativism, militant feminism, and homosexual activism, we're blessed to have a solid basis for sexual ethics and in God's creation ordinances. And that really is how this week's sermon, Lerman, connects to last week's and the ones to come. If these later texts of Scripture all treat Genesis as literal history and Adam as a literal historical person, then if we say the events of Genesis didn't take place or that Adam wasn't a historical person, the reliability of the Scripture is overturned. If you don't have Adam, you don't have the Bible. And if you don't have the Bible, you don't have that reliable revelation of truth from the mouth of the triune God of truth. And that means you've got chaos and absurdity, which is what we live in every day. And so, over and against all of it, let it be heard with clarity that this is who you are. This is your identity, Christian. You are not an evolved animal. You are not a slave to your own basest passions and impulses. You are not of no more dignity than to be discarded when society determines that you're just not useful or convenient or wanted. And neither are you a little mini god, accountable to no one but yourself, fabricating your own truth and speaking your own identity into existence. You are most fundamentally a creature. And so you are accountable to God, your creator, subject to the identity he has given you, subject to the law of his mouth as the rule of your life. You must order your life as he says you must under the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ, or you must suffer the consequences of divine justice, both in this life in which the way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13, 15 and in the life to come in which judgment will be righteously poured out on all who do not bow the knee to Christ. And so I I would call you if you're here this evening and you're outside of Christ and you buck against the authoritative proclamation of God's truth over and against the sinful lies of this culture, if you are standing, preparing to stand before the, the bar of God's justice in the nakedness of your own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, I call you to bow the knee, to confess your sin, to own your wickedness, the, the failure, to meet God's perfectly righteous standard. And I call you to turn in faith to Jesus Christ, who obeyed precisely where you failed to obey, whose blood covers the sins of all those for whom he died on that cross, and who rose again on the third day, and who ascended into heaven, and who invites you to come to him you who are weary and heavy laden under the burden of your sins. And he promises rest and forgiveness and new life and eternal life. Turn, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And recognize all of us, believer alike, you're a creature. That's who you are fundamentally. You are a, a creature. You're not just a creature. You're a creature made in his image, and so you're the objects of his unique favor and blessing. You're possessed of an unspeakable dignity that sets you apart from the rest of creation. But you're a creature. And so you receive your identity from your, your creator. And we'll speak next time about what it means to bear his image. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great truth that we, it is not we who made us, but it's you who made us that we do not speak ourselves into existence and so we do not determine our identity. We receive our identity from our Creator. And we pray that You would help us to be equipped and thoroughly convinced of the biblical teaching concerning the doctrine of the creation, that we would be able to defend it when those have questions or even challenges to it. We pray that we would so know You, that we would know ourselves, and that we would so know ourselves that we would know You, and that we would preach these truths, teach these truths, and live in accordance with these truths in a world that hates the truth. May it be that you use this people to bring the truth into a world of lies, to bring the hope of the gospel to those who are lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.